Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. You're looking at Act 1, Scene 1 of A Nightmare. One not restricted to witching hours and dark rain-swept nights. Professor Walter Jameson, popular beyond words, who talks of the past as if it were the present, who conjures up the dead as if they were alive. The Union soldiers burned Atlanta, but I assure you they took no pleasure in their work. They were forced to it by a man they hated more than they could ever hate the rebels. An ugly, sullen, unbelievably brutal man named William Tecumseh Sherman. To give you a more comprehensive idea of this great hero, let me read you a few extracts from the diary of Major Skelton. The date is Tuesday, September 11th, 1864. The city was ours. There was no need to destroy aught save that which could be of use in the fight against us. But Sherman was drunk with victory. He himself started the awful fires. The fires that destroyed that great citadel of grace and beauty. In the view of this man, Professor Samuel Kitteridge, Walter Jameson has access to knowledge that couldn't come out of a volume of history but rather from a book on black magic, which is to say that this nightmare begins at noon. All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema's The Twilight Zone series. I'm your host, Jimbo, and I'm joined by my fellow Earthling, ADZ. ADZ here from the Fifth Dimension, back again to speak with you all. Glad to be here. You doing all right, Eric? Doing doing well. Yourself? Ah, bunch of snow days, man. It's just all the snow and cold weather, dude. It's, I, sometimes I wish I was in the fifth dimension, you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Especially when you got to drive uh, as long as you do. We've had several uh, wintry type days and it's supposed to get uh, pretty cold. Yeah, pretty icy what too. A- so 
Well, here we are. Well, enough about the weather. Yeah, enough enough about the weather. Now to our regularly scheduled program. Um, right. We are on episode twenty four of season one already. Twenty four, man. We're we're going right along with this. Um, so this is long live Walter Jameson. This is a really cool episode. I do believe uh, personally, I liked it. So, Eric, let's just jump right in and get going on it. Okay. The as as Jimbo mentioned earlier, this is episode number twenty four of season one, and it is entitled "Long Live Walter Jameson." It was directed by Anton Leder, and it was written by Charles Beaumont, and it was first broadcast on March the 18th, 1960, with a total production cost of $42,726.66. And a special edition for this week, I adjusted that for inflation, and it is 300, if this number is correct, I, I hope it's correct. Uh, adjusted for inflation, it would be $373,585.46 for one episode. So that kind of brings it up and puts it in context of today's numbers. Yep. So I don't know. I don't know, Jimbo. What's a what's a modern day episode? That I do not know. I know. I know that like uh, for Seinfeld, I know the actors were getting paid a million dollars an episode. So that's that's yeah. at least four million there plus their set fees. I don't. I don't know anything else. You know what I mean? So that's what's making me question. I don't know. That number may not be right, but uh, I'll check a couple other websites. No, but uh, but I'm saying that's probably about right. I mean, yeah, it 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 might be. Um, that just seemed kind of low. That's why I was kind of wondering kind of what, uh, costs are today, but, uh, yeah. So Jimbo, do you want to take the cast? From sure. Here? Uh, the cast, we have the main character, Mr. Uh, played, uh, or Kevin McCarthy. He played, uh, Walter Jameson, also Tom Bowen and also major Hugh Skelton. Now, why would you ask, why did he play three parts? Well, we'll get to that here shortly. Um, he was also in Inner Space, uh, where he played Victor, and he was also in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, another great sci-fi movie uh, from yesteryear. Um, Edgar Stelly as Professor Samuel Kittridge. Estelle Winwood as Lorette Bowen. Um, she was in The Producer, uh, one of Mel Brooks's films. Also, we have Dottie Heath as Susanna Kittredge. Uh, and one of the most famous movies she was in was The Diary of Anne Frank, um, where she played Mip Geese. So, okay. there you have it. I wasn't uh, Susanna Kittredge or, or Dottie Heath. I, I didn't know that she was in really any other uh, TV or movie. Um, now, Eric, if I said, give me a synopsis of this movie, what would you say, or this TV show, what would you say of this episode? Of this episode, uh, a man seeks after eternal life only to find that, uh, I don't know, that it's not what it's cracked up to be. Right. He uh, well, literally cracks up in the process. Well, what I would, what I <laughs> nice, I see what you did there. Um I said uh, that a father forbids a history professor from marrying his daughter, who he discovered is an immortal, who has lived for thousands of years. Yeah, and I'm gonna get to that part. That that was kind of a big obstacle for me to get. Well, let's I'm get ahead of myself <laughs> once again. Let's start at the beginning, and we'll we'll kind of maybe slowly 
well, not slowly, maybe we'll speed up the walkthrough a little bit more and kind of hit the the high points. Um, the episode that, um, two episodes ago, uh, the Monsters Are Due on Maple Street had a very large cast. This one, only four uh, actors in this particular episode. So we have a condensed cast. And really, just by way of kind of highlighting the episode, most of the screen time is between... Um, the Walt, or excuse me, the Sam Kitteridge um, character and Walter Jameson. Uh, a large chunk of the episode is there conversing back and forth. Uh, but I digress. Let's jump right into the episode. And right off top, we got a little bit of trivia. Uh, this stock footage is from Collins College, I believe, Collins University. And it was purchased at a bargain, according to a letter penned by Buck Houghton. I looked up Collins college or collins university i i don't think it exists anymore maybe it does i don't know i didn't really do a very deep dive but i can't find out like where it's at in the u.s or anything like that so i don't know if it exists anymore or not but uh yeah that was just a side note of trivia so as we go from the stock footage we go the, the camera sort of pans into a classroom where we, we meet walter jameson who is a history professor and has been for I think 12 years at this point and we see Professor Sam Kitteridge uh, we come to meet him later he is uh, a fellow colleague and he's sitting in on one of the lectures that Walter Jameson um, is giving and actually during the lecture, this is this comes to my my first little I guess piece of trivia. Maybe Jimbo, you might have caught this, but during his lecture, um, Walter Jameson. Well, first of all, it, uh, the one thing that was intriguing to Sam Kitteridge, who actually ends up being the father of the woman that uh, Walter Jameson is engaged to. Uh, Walter Jameson seems to give his lectures. And the reason why he's so popular with the students is the fact that he gives his lectures as though he lived the events that he is telling about in, in his history class. And if I remember and, if I remember correctly, I don't think he uses any notes either, does he? Well, it's funny you should bring that up because one of the things that he pulls out of his uh, bag is a diary. Um, I don't, is this, uh, the diary actually, that's why you mentioned Major Hugh Skelton as one of the characters that he plays. He is quoting from a diary uh, from Major Hugh Skelton. Well, he says that he is, but in fact, he, the, the camera actually gives a close-up shot on the diary that he's supposedly reading from, and it's dated September 11th, 1864. But the actual, you know, um, script in the diary, the actual entry from the diary, he's not reading at all, if you've noticed that. Mm -hmm. He's totally ad-libbing the diary. He's just pretending to open it up because if the, the camera shot allows you to read the words if you really pause on it. And the and the words are nothing. They, they don't match up to what he's actually right. saying as he's giving his lecture, if that makes any sense. So, you know, that just further cements the fact that, you know, uh, this guy, Walter Jameson... Well, um, again, I'm getting ahead here, but uh, something doesn't match up if you were really paying attention closely uh, because it it goes back to that fact that it just seems like he's he's telling these stories as if he 
lived through these events. And that's what is puzzling to Sam Kitteridge. And uh, after the lecture, he goes and he invites uh, Walter Jameson over for dinner uh, at his house. Oh, by the way, before we get to that next scene, we have uh, Rod Serling. He sort of splits his narration in this particular episode. He uh, he starts out with the narration describing who Walter Jameson is, and then he kind of fades out, and then Walter Jameson is giving his lecture, and then Walter Jameson's audio sort of fades out, and then uh, Rod Serling picks up with the the conclusion of his inter- intro narration. Um, Jimbo, any any thoughts or comments on that first no, part I of the, just, the episode? Um, yeah, like you said, it's very interesting to listen to him talk. Uh, it's almost like captivating, and all of his students seem to be actually be paying attention. You know what I mean? Like they're mesmerized by him. I mean, I don't know how you were in school. Well, I do know a little bit how you were in school, but what I'm saying is, you'd have those teachers, man, where you could just fall asleep. You know, you put your hand up on your desk like this, and you'd fall asleep. But, you know, it was those teachers that made things interesting for you and brought it down to a personal level that you were mesmerized with and captivated by. And I think that's exactly what this professor was doing. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think both of us were fortunate at least to have a a handful of teachers that were, you know, very similar on that level that, you know, they, they really cared about their students and students can tell. And, you know, they they are engaging with their uh, their lectures and their teaching, and that's the kind of guy Walter Jameson is. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he's he's very uh, you know like you just described you described it very well, very engaging with the students, and uh, I mean it it kind of is implied in the episode that you know his classes were full because I mean this guy just had a wealth of knowledge and he was a great storyteller. So we move on to the next scene, and I mentioned that Sam Kitteridge is going to ask Walter Jameson over for dinner. But before he does that, he wants to see, or he asks to see, the Major Hugh Skelton diary that Walter Jameson has just read from. And this is kind of where it gets a little bit tricky. It kind of piques your curiosity because um, Sam wants to borrow um, the diary so that he can examine it and... And Walter Jameson kind of shuts him down and says, you know, I never lend books out. And he kind of snatches it back out of his hand and puts it back in his bag. And I think that that's due to the fact that, you know, this was just like a fake, maybe maybe a fake prop. Mm-hmm. This whole diary thing. I mean, that's my guess. If I had to guess, it was just a fake prop. And he didn't want to loan it to him because he knew if, you know, Sam was able to open it and read through it, he would find out that, you know, those things, like I said earlier, the, the entries didn't match up to what Walter was saying, so then he would be out of that, like he was ad-libbing the whole thing, and none of what was in the diary was the content that he was actually lecturing on. So that was kind of a, the highlight of that scene. They agree, Walter agrees to come over for dinner. The next scene, we see Walter exiting his house, and I think Jimbo has some trivia on the, on the house that was used, but I... Um, I don't know. Maybe we can save that for later, unless you want to enter it right here. Oh, well, it was just that the uh, interior living room and front door entrance set for the first act is the living room of George in the time machine in 1960. Uh, The original wood paneling from that film has been painted white, but is otherwise obviously the same set, albeit without the Victorian era dressings. The same set also appears in other first season episodes of The Twilight Zone. Okay, so that's actually the Kitteridge house, maybe not right. Walter Jameson's house. We only see the front porch of Walter Jameson's house, 
And we see as he's walking, they actually were neighbors. Sam and Walter were neighbors because he kind of just walks across the street. Um, we see a lady who's hiding behind a tree. And uh, we come to find out later uh, that that is uh, Lorette Bowen. But she's just kind of crouching behind the tree and she's a mysterious figure. And she wa- she's watching Walter Jameson. So when you first saw tree. when you first right. saw her, what was your first reaction of who she was? Without giving anything away yet, what was your first reaction? I, I don't know. I guess maybe the, I'm trying to think back to the first time I saw it because I've seen it probably four or five times now. But maybe like a long lost relative or his, uh, you know, um, maybe a, like his mother. Or grand- That's who I thought. Name. I thought it was. I thought it was his mother. You know, what I mean. That's who I thought. Yeah. Yeah, someone that he was a strange relative or something like that, you know, I guess if I had to guess. And then uh, Walter gets to the house and he is greeted by um, Dottie Heath, who plays Susanna Kittredge. Uh, and this is his uh, soon to be wife. Are they engaged at this point? I don't I don't remember. I think uh, they are engaged at this point. Are they or is he is that why he's over there to ask to marry her? I can't remember. Well, he does that later in the episode. But I think it was sort of like... Uh, Just informing ex- him? E- well, it was expedited. I think they might have already been um, married, or I'm sorry, already engaged. And because of the you know the tough conversation that Walter and Sam have, it's kind of sped up his you know ambitions to marry. Right. But S- Sam is, you know, he is concerned secondarily, I guess, about the age difference because... I don't. I think um, Susanna is like in her thirties, maybe, and Walter. Well, we'll get to that in a second. But you know, Sam and Walter go. Like I said, they are the bulk of the um, episode. So Susanna really makes kind of a brief appearance, and then Sam, her father. This is after dinner, and Sam, her father, tells her uh, that she needs to go up and study because he's all about education. And she's trying to get her doctorate degree, right? A doc, doctoral degree, degree, and I'm not sure in in what. But Sam is, you know, he's high on education. He wants her to go and study. She has a big uh, exam coming up, and so uh, he, you know, uh, Susanna goes upstairs, and it's just Walter and Sam. And Walter begins to ask some probing questions, and. Kitteridge recognizes Jameson as a guy by the name of Matthew Brady, and he discovers uh, him in a Civil War photograph that he has a book, uh, you know, on his bookshelf. Yeah, he he's been talking to another one of his professor colleagues, and you know, inquiring um, about certain things. And the other professor, I think, recommends. Uh, kind of jogs something in Sam's mind. So he comes home and he, he looks up this book and he finds a photograph of, well, Walter Jameson, a.k.a. Um, Tom, I'm sorry, Hugh, uh, Major Hugh Skelton. And he opens up the book and they are, you know, an identical match. The picture that was over 100 years ago matches Walter Jameson perfectly. I mean, and he asks him the question, did your grandfather serve in the Civil War? And Walter Jameson says no. And he asks him a, asks him a series of probing questions. And he presents several pieces of evidence, evidence. 
you know, and Jameson ultimately reveals his real life history. And uh, he describes that he is ageless, but he doesn't have an immunity to injury. And that he was this um, strange phenomenon, this sort of everlasting life was imparted to him by an alchemist for more than 2,000 years ago. Now, I have a question. Sure. Um, has has it got to the point yet where uh, they're playing chess and he notices the ring on his hand? Yeah, that was have one you- of the pieces of evidence that um, sort of at, led him to ask, led Sam to ask more probing questions, yeah. Right, because there's a ring on his thing. He's like, that's a pretty interesting ring there, you know what I mean? Yeah, he said... He said something to the effect of, like, you should have taken off the ring because it's a dead giveaway. Right. And that was one of the, you know, he describes his facial features in the photo. The photograph was, like, one of the last pieces of evidence, if not the last piece of evidence, that kind of sealed the deal. Like, this guy looks exactly like you. He has the same facial features with the same mole on the left side of his face, the same ring. And, you know, it's without a doubt Major Hugh Skelton from the Civil War. And this is where... This particular part, as you know, as Walter Jameson is explaining, that actually he's not more than a hundred years old, and he he hasn't had this uh, particular phenomenon for not only a hundred years at that time, from eighteen sixty to nineteen sixty, but actually it's more than two thousand years that he's been living like this and not being able to see death, because there's a statue of Plato in the living room, and he says. He makes an offhanded comment like he was actually able to talk to Plato face to face. I can't remember what the exact line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's where I kind of go. They could have left that part out because I mean that was just too implausible for me. Like the whole idea. See, I guess we need to make a distinction here because can he die? Can he not die from diseases or plagues? I guess I guess that is sort of implied that he can't. And that he can only die, that he can't die from natural causes, but only some sort of outside force like, um, you know, a mortal wound uh, or breaking a leg. Because he, I don't know, he makes the comment like, you know, some people can, some people can live their own, their whole life and not have an accident or not break a bone. And I don't know, that just kind of, that's too flimsy of an explanation for 2000, think about that, over 2000 years of life and you and think about all the wars that have been on the earth and you didn't and you didn't have an accident just okay just go back to like 100 AD and if you break your leg a simple breaking of the leg you know you could have infection all these things can set in from just breaking a bone and you mean to tell me that you lived 2000 plus years of history and you never got caught in a war and well, we already you know. know we already know he was in a war because of the photograph from the Civil War. Exactly. So you know he kind of dismisses it as like some people are just lucky that way. But I mean, think I don't know what the numbers are. But let's just I say don't, you take let's just take I, say you take out diseases like the bubonic plague and the 1917 flu and all the diseases and things that can go all the way back for two thousand years. And let's say you can't die from those. Okay, you can't die from natural causes. Just the number of wars that have been on planet Earth for 2,000 years, it just seems highly unlikely 
that you wouldn't accidentally die or on purpose die from either a mortal wound in battle or, you know, just anything that could happen. There's a million ways to die. You well, know. well, let me ask you, let me ask you this question. Do you think do you think he could have died at all? Or was well, he just or was he just saying mortal injuries or was he just giving that information feeding it to Kitteridge? Saying because he thought maybe hey Kitteridge is going to turn me in or kill me or shoot me or something. Maybe he thinks if he shoots me or something, then because um, I'm going to marry his daughter, then I still won't die. You know what I mean? Was he just feeding him a line, or do you think well, he was being honest? I don't think so because he goes on in the dialogue with Kitteridge and he says, "I have a gun and it's in the top drawer of my desk, and every night I pray that I have the courage to pull the trigger." So he's sort of revealing the fact that. You know, if I have a, a gunshot, would kill me. But I've just been, like, lucky all of these 2,000 years, and I haven't had an accident or, you know, just think about, like, you know, you know, there's just, I don't know. That was just too too much for me to, to overcome. They probably could have cut that little part out, and it still, it would have been more believable to me. I know it's the fifth dimension, and I'm probably being way too picky. I but. think I think he should have just been immortal. Period. You know. Yeah, what I, mean? I mean, I think that yeah, would have been easier that to digest. Made more sense. Yeah. And the, he also talks about the fact that, uh, well, Sam asks him. So I guess you've been married. Something to the effect, I guess you've been married several times. And he said yes. And and that kind of makes that that was good writing in the sense that you know. Walter can only be married. He has to leave um, his wives because he's really a polygamist because he just walks away from marriages because if he, you just think about if he gets married at say like age 40 and say his wife is around the same age and she ate and he lived and he's around for like 10, 15 years and she ages and he doesn't, his secret's going to be found out. So that's why he has to leave and he can't really stay in Marriage is very long, so he's been married multiple times, and we're going to get to the the point in the episode where we realize that the lady by the tree, I'll just go ahead and give it away now, is one of his former wives that has come back and found him. And he indicates that his first wife um, and child, he sees them pass away because obviously he has like this quote-unquote eternal life. And so... You know, he can't stay in a relationship very long. And this is concerning to Sam because he's trying to protect his daughter. In this, right. And he knows and that she's going to be hurt by all this. No, no, I was just agreeing with you. It's just No, I just thought maybe you, 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 you always wondered. I always wondered, like, actually, how many kids did this guy have? If he's been around for a thousand years or two thousand years or whatever, how many how many kids did he have? You know what I mean? That's That's kind of shocking and scary in its own thought. Yeah, it doesn't really talk about, you know, the children that he's fathered other than his original marriage. Also, it's important to point out, too, he describes that the alchemist, he get, pays him a large sum of money. That's how he becomes immortal. He pays him a large sum of money in order to do his testing and all, to run all of his experiments and then he falls into like a deep sleep. I guess he uh, becomes unconscious. Unconscious, And then when he wakes up, the alchemist is nowhere to be found. So I would take from that the implication that the alchemist, 
he's outlived the alchemist that it worked his experiment worked and the alchemist is dead and that's why he's nowhere around but walter jameson says oh, i you know i feel no different than when i started the experiment and everything right. must have worked out because it's important to note too Again, this is the the meat of the episode, this back and forth between Walter and Sam. Sam is scared to die. He wants Walter to reveal this secret that he has discovered about Walter, and he wants him to share the information. And Walter's like, look, I don't have the answer. I don't know how this happened. And then he goes into the whole uh, explanation about the alchemist and the experiments and stuff. Because, you know, Sam is afraid to die, and he's like 70 years old at this point, and... Walter says, you don't want to, you know, even if you could do this, you don't want to live the rest of your days as a 70-year-old man because it's like, you know, it's implied that he's um, frozen in whatever age that he is. I think Walter's like 51 or 53. Right. Uh, and he's constantly in that state. And another point that's brought up is uh, Walter says, you know, you would think with all of the years that I have lived that you would become more wise and he just says, that's not true. You just live day after day after day. They're all the same. And he actually is wishing that he could die. Right. He doesn't have the courage to, you know, commit suicide. Um, so that's a pretty lengthy section. You know, and, and, and that's another problem I have. If he was really that distraught, he could have walked in front of a cannonball or something in Civil War. Yeah, you know what I mean? That's what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> to, to live that long, he's... You know, that that just doesn't... And if it was as horrible of an existence that he claims that it was, and you're not getting any wisdom, and there's no reason for living, not that I would advocate for suicide or anything like that, but, like, you would think that at some point, you know, in probably the multiple wars that he was a participant of, not just the Civil War, that, um, you know, he would find the courage to... That kind of makes me wonder if the alchemist didn't put something special uh, in the ring, too, that makes him very lucky. You know what I mean? Like, where no ill will will befall him. You know, maybe that's part of the alchemist uh, sorcery. You know what I mean? Where this guy's just going to have incredible luck. I mean, that could be part of it, too. You know what that, I mean? That could be a real... That's a really good explanation, maybe, too. So, Susanna comes back downstairs after this long conversation. Walter explains to Sam that he tried to keep himself from... Um, Susanna because he didn't want to hurt her because they would start a relationship and obviously Walter knowing himself that eventually Susanna would get hurt um, Susanna fell for him and then it was just too much for him he fell in love with her and so when she comes down he says let's get married tonight go upstairs pack everything and be ready in 15 minutes I'm going to come back and we're going to sort of elope and so Walter after that, he leaves and goes across the street to his house and goes into his study, pulls out the gun, and it looks like he's going to like write a suicide letter. And in walks his former wife, we come to find out, whose name is Lorette Bowen. And he is not Walter Jameson, but Tom Bowen in a former life. She confronts him and tells him, you called me the most beautiful woman you've ever seen. You said I had the most beautiful eyes uh, that you've ever seen at, at one time. And she's just, you know, you could tell she's really heartbroken. And she explains that 
she had read about his engagement in the newspaper. So I guess that means, yeah, Suzanne and him were engaged at that point because she read about it, obviously. And she's tracked him down. She's tracked him down and she's confronting him. And she basically says, look, no other woman is going to have you but me. And I can't believe you walked away from me. You've you know, obviously hurt me so badly. And she picks up the loaded gun and shoots Walter. Well, actually, we don't see her shoot him. We hear the sound come from outside of the house because the camera goes like outside to the street. Sam hears the gunshot from across the street um, and comes running across the street. And he finds Walter uh, languishing in pain. Well, actually, it's kind of, let me back up. He encounters Lorette standing Mm -hmm. out in front of the house and he runs up to her and says, what's going on or something like that. And she doesn't really answer him. I don't think. And then he rushes into the house. He finds Walter kind of slumped over a little bit. He's in great pain. He tries to help Walter. Walter says, no, leave me alone. Leave me alone. And he can tell he, he wants, Sam wants to immediately pick up the phone and call the doctor. And Walter says, no, no. And, uh, this is the this is like the best part in the episode. I mean, the special effects for how they did it was awesome, right here. Jimbo, did you have notes on? Uh, yeah, let me let me pull effects? that up real quick. Uh, let me find it real quick. So, in this cool little book, I have the Twilight Zone Companion. I was I just wanted to read a little bit about this. So, um, the twentieth episode, which actually this was the twentieth episode shot, which is crazy. Um, according to this book, you know, I mean, so, uh, the, even though it's number 24 in the season one, I think it was the 20th episode shot. Um, this was the 19th under Houghton, uh, was the most technically demanding yet attempted to accomplish the climatic effect of Jameson aging and turning to dust. A close collaboration was required between Kevin McCarthy, director of photography, George Clemens and William Tuttle, head of the MGM makeup department. Fortunately, a more talented man than Tuttle could not have been present. Five years later, he became the first makeup artist to receive an Academy Award for his superb work on Tony Randall in The Seven Faces of Dr. Lau, which coincidentally was written, uh, scripted by Beaumont. His credits range all the way from The Wizard of Oz to Young Frankenstein, The Fury, and Love at First Bite. McCarthy's metamorphosis consisted of three separate and distinct age makeups, each older than the one before it. For the first change, a trick was employed which Clemens had first encountered while working on the Frederick March Dr. Jekyll Miss Hyde in 1931. This consisted of drawing lines on the actor's face, in this case age lines, in red makeup. The set was then lit with key lights with red filters over them so that the set was bathed in a red light, rendering the lines invisible. As the scene progressed, the red lights were dimmed while simultaneously lights with green filters were raised. Now in green light, uh, the line suddenly became visible. Since the film is in black and white, the color change is undetectable. What appears to happen in apparent miracle in which a complete makeup change has occurred on camera with no cuts. Considerably heavier makeup was required for the second and third changes. Prior to the shooting, a life mask was made of McCarthy onto that folds and wrinkles were molded into or in plasticine, an oil-based clay that never dries out. For each various component of the makeup, forehead, cheeks, uh, chin, neck, and upper lip, a separate mold was made. Foam rubber pieces were cast from the molds and glued onto McCarthy's face. Uh, 
What emerges is a, in a, is a, a sequence in which the illusion of someone rapidly aging is rendered quite convincingly, while leaving McCarthy still recognizable throughout something that wouldn't have been possible had they just substituted real old men for McCarthy. Like Perchance to Dream, Long Live Walter Jameson is basically a dialogue between two men um, and their former between the main characters and a psychiatrist, and the latter between two professors. But whereas the former sustains itself with a tremendous velocity, the strength of the latter lies in the allure of its concept of the virtuosity of Boymont's writing. So I thought that was pretty interesting that um, they had a little correlation between that and Perchance to Dream as well. That that was very interesting on how they did it. I thought it was I thought it was awesome, you know, for the time period that we were talking about, and then just the camera shifting back from Sam to Walter, and each time he gets older and older. I thought it was. Well it kind of reminded me of like the old Universal Monsters. If you listen to our Universal Monsters episode on the regular podcast, that the the Wolfman scene when the Wolfman changes, um, that and when uh, Claude reigns in the Invisible Man when he disintegrates at the end or whatever, I, those those two kind of um, pop out in my mind too. Yeah, just a little piece of trivia here too. I guess the makeup artist was having a conversation with uh, Kevin McCarthy as you know as he was getting made up, and he said the cost to do this particular makeup um was like five thousand dollars for uh, dr jekyll and mr hyde by the time they were doing it for that episode of the twilight zone they were charging twenty five thousand dollars right so it's quite a i mean twenty five thousand that's like over half of the total budget right of the entire episode right and that was only what 19 dr jekyll was what 1931 and this was what 1960 so that's only 29 years yeah so uh Quite an inflation for that particular, uh, you know, effect, yeah. process and effect. But I thought it was beautifully executed. I thought it was awesome, and you know, that, yeah, just that was great. Now, back to the back to the actual episode. Sam comes in. This all happens kind of in front of him. He hears Susanna come. She runs across the street. He can kind of hear her outside the door of the study. He rushes to the door to try to prevent her from getting in. And, and then we see the the scene, the next scene, um, as good as the the special effects was on the um, on the facial part of Walter Jameson, the whole piles of dust by his hands and the empty suit. Kind of a little cheesy, but you know, they spent all the money on the on the face, so it was pretty. I still think it was pretty well done, though. Yeah, I think it, it was okay. because it doesn't even some of the blow away in the wind or something. Yeah, that was kind of cool at the end. As we come to the end of the episode, the the sand um, or the dust kind of blows away, and I thought that was a cool line by Sam at the end. You know, like uh, from dust to dust. I can't remember what the exact right. line was, but I just thought of. Indiana Jones and the the Last Crusade, you know that was you have cool chosen effect. poorly. <laughs> yeah, the the the, uh, the chalice, um, the Carpenter's Cup, you know, and the the Nazi drinks, and he, it it wasn't, you know, it, I just thought of that how he sort of disintegrates. It, it's sort of the same, I guess, idea behind what happened. So, That's what popped in my mind. But so let me ask you a question: when when his body is disintegrated, since you haven't pulled up. Um, at the end, is the ring still laying there? It is. It's on his left, uh, on his left sleeve. There's a pile of dust. And okay, yeah. so my question is: Do you think that uh, Sam uh, would go over there and pick that up and put it on to see if the power would still be working? 
Uh, he doesn't in the episode, but right, uh, I can see why you would think that. I, I see where. No, you're I'm, I'm just, I'm just speculating. No, that's a good observation. If, if the, if the alchemist, alchemy usually has to have a, 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 a object to perform yeah, the and, alchemy, and, and metal, and they, and they kind of do in metals and stuff. Right. Like that. Yeah. So I'm thinking that the power would still be in that ring. Now, now, when I first watched the movie, or sorry, the show. I thought that maybe she um, she pulled the ring off of him. I thought mm-hmm. that would have been a cooler ending if she would have pulled the ring off of him, like she went in for a hug or something, and ended up pulling the ring off of his finger, and then he disintegrated. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like basically, mm-hmm. I if you're not gonna live, I, I, I you, if I can't have you, nobody's gonna have you. You know what I mean? Sort I think that would have been a really cool ending to this episode. Yeah. Um, but then also if. And maybe Sam would have went over there and just, you know, after he shunned his daughter away, you know, went over there and just picked up and just kind of looked at the ring, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then kind of get that odd look on his face, maybe slide it on. I don't know. I yeah. think that would have been a lot of uh, a better ending uh, besides the shock factor that you got. You know what I mean? Yeah, that was a cool ending, like the Romeo and Juliet type ending. where Right, but that way, this way it would have been left wide open. You know what I mean? It wouldn't have just been, it ended with him. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, that's pretty, that's a, yeah, I like that. You should have, uh. <laughs> I should have ordered it. The, yeah, you should, we were born in the wrong time. You could have been a co-writer of the uh, the episode. That's, right. Yeah. So, a couple little things that I found. Um, ironically, the character portrayed by Kevin McCarthy in this episode mentions the date of September 11th. McCarthy actually died on September 11th, 2010. So, mm-hmm. we've seen that a lot lately. Like, where people are the age in, in the Twilight Zone, they actually die that age in real life or whatever. Um this episode deals with immortality. The entire cast all lived exceptionally long lives. Kevin McCarthy lived to be 96. Estelle Winwood was 101 when she passed away, um, which I thought she was 101 in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Edgar Stilley passed away shortly after turning 89, and Dottie Heath turned 90 in August of 2018. So long lived them. They're all long lived lives. Um,. Let's see here. This episode has uh, f- uh, may have inspired fellow Twilight Zone writer Jerome Bixby from The Twilight Zone. Uh, it's a Good Life in 1961 uh, to write his novel The Man from Earth. Also a story about a history professor who reveals to his friends that he is immortal through the tone and the age of the lead character, the mechanisms of immortality, and the plot. Of all the stories, all different considerably. Bixby also visited the immortal man theme in Star Trek, the original series, in the episode Requiem for Methuselah in 1969. This is among a handful of Twilight Zone episodes to be uh, uh, to exclude the series title in the closing narration. Other episodes to this is Jesse Bell in 1963, which had no closing narration at all, which is really interesting. Hmm. Uh, on Thursday, we leave for home, 1963. The Four of Us Are Dying in 1960, which we've already covered, and He's Alive in 1963. Uh, possible influence may be Mary Shelley's short story, The Mortal Immortal, uh, it also deals with a man who receives the gift of immortality from a mysterious alchemist, but ultimately watches his loved ones die off. And Eric, did you have any extra things that you had? No, just um, the. I, I don't think I had any other. Tr- oh wait, I do have one other thing. The original title of the script and throughout the production was the title of this episode was supposed to be "Forever and a Day." The title was not changed until months after filming uh, was completed. Originally, this episode was to be filmed in three days, but it took an extra day to complete production, mainly because of the time involved to construct the proper aging process in Jameson's study. So uh, a large portion of the uh, filming time was obviously on that important scene. Right. 
But also, uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, occasionally cited his performance in this episode playing a character who was immortal as seemingly having coming true in his own life as he remained in good health and continued to act while outliving most of his family and colleagues as he approached the age of 100. McCarthy died, as we said, on September 11, 2010 at the age of 96, having earned an acting credit as late as the year he died, more than 50 years after this episode occurred. Wow, that's pretty neat. Yeah, very interesting. So, So, Eric, give me your thoughts on this episode. So, Jimbo, give me your thoughts. Um, well, I get it, my thoughts. It's a very, very entertaining episode. Uh, I, I, I like the premise of it. Um, I just wish the ending was a little different. Um, I think if they would have made it more of a play on that ring, you know, I mean, I think that would have that would have drawn me in more. Um, but uh, I enjoyed it. I mean, this is this is probably upper tier of season one. Uh, it's not like last top week's 10? episode. <laughs> you know what I mean? Is it is it top ten? Uh, Mm. We we still got about twelve more to go through season one. I'll let you know. I'm I'm working on my list, but my list keeps changing as we keep going through these. Um, as of right now, yeah, it probably probably right up there. You know what I mean? Uh, really? I don't say it's in the top five, but I mean I, I'd say it's in the it probably right around ten, eleven. You know, at the moment. Okay, uh, it's not in my top ten. Um, I guess the thing that I couldn't get around, and I know this is science fiction but the whole i just thought that was too fantastical the whole living 2000 years and but you think that three astronauts that crash land on an asteroid and can become (laughs) you know what i mean is better (laughs) yeah i just think if i could rewrite the the episode like you wanted to rewrite the ending i would only go back 100 years to 1860 i wouldn't make it the whole 2000 years because that's just it's too too much of a hurdle to jump over. If I could have rewritten it, I would have rewritten it that he was, whatever, 150 years old rather than 2,050 years old or however. I mean, Plato is like 325 B.C., you know, so I don't know. Yeah, but I still think that I still think that makes it pretty cool, though, you know, that he actually talked to some of these people. All you see is bust in libraries, you know what I mean? That I yeah, still think but- it's pretty cool. Well, probably for, I mean, it would be cool if he sort of elaborated a little bit more right. on, on those. But I'm, I'm for time's sake, he couldn't do that. But I don't know. I, that's just my one criticism. But I thought it was an overall, it was a good episode. It was a good, solid, sturdy Twilight Zone episode that did make my top ten. But, you know, it was good. I liked it. It kept me entertained. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, just from the fact of why is this guy showing up in this book? Why does he have this picture? Is this him? Is this not him? Who is this creepy old lady that's peering behind a tree looking yeah. at this guy? You know what I mean? So it, it kept my – it piqued my interest. It kept my interest. So I definitely have to say I liked it a lot better than some of the other ones. So, well, yeah. I think this episode's coming to a close. Eric, any final thoughts? Um, none that I can think of. Um, where are we going next week? What episode? I'm, I don't have it in front well, of me. Well, it's episode uh, number 25. Um, Which, I, do you have that pulled I, up? Uh, no, uh, I want to say it's is it Hold execute? On. Maybe I don't know. Oh, it is a good one. It is. I think you're right. It is execution. Now, no, it's uh, people are like all over. Oh, oh, that's a good I, one too. I, I won't jump into that one. I don't think I initially. You may have to pull me along on this one again because I don't think I initially liked it. Um. Uh, if I'm thinking correctly, I think the ending is. I think the ending is pretty cool. Yeah, 
But I don't want to get into it. <laughs> but overall, yeah, I don't think I was a real big fan of it. But yeah. it's got an 8.2 on IMDb. So we'll uh, put that one together next week. All right. Well, so long from the fifth dimension. And that's a wrap on this episode. And 80s, and, take it away. And cut. Last stop on a long journey. As yet another human being returns to the vast nothingness that is the beginning. And into the dust that is always the end.